Well, again, uh, good morning again to all of you who just uh, may have joined us since the beginning of our service. A warm, happy new year to all of you. And if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark this morning. Mark, uh, Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to be, 28 through 34. A very familiar text for those of us who are, belie- are believers in Jesus, but a very important text for us today. All right. Mark chapter 12. Verse 28 through 34. And I figure, uh, you know, at the end, beginning of the year, you always like to look at the, you know, stats and things like that, let me charts and whatnot to kind of think about, uh, uh, you know, uh, various matters, various things that happened uh, over the year and stuff. And so I thought I'd start with a couple of charts for you, okay? And uh, I was just perusing. If you've ever read on uh, in the internet or in books about the life cycle of the church, you basically will find a very similar um, a similar uh, explanation of a life cycle church. And, and I'll show you through you to you. You can't even see them. <laughs> but you, I'll just explain to you what they, do, what they do show. And it's not important really what the charts are, but simply that when church growth specialists, when church growth scholars, they, they discuss about what is the life cycle of a church, how a church grows from its birth all the way through its life to, uh, to its death. It goes through a very common and uh, familiar uh, cycle, and sometimes these cycles are named after basically the, the same stages of life that you and I may go through from birth to childhood, adolescence, maturity, uh, maybe old age, maturity, emptiness, and then finally death. Uh, death of a church, when a church decides to basically shutter its doors. And what I want to point out is that though there are these stages, and usually that when a church is at its maturity, it's at its, there's always a peak of a church, and then there's the turning of a peak where the church begins to decline. But all throughout these various stages of a church, of a, of a church through its growth life cycle, uh, it will focus on uh, usually various... Uh, f- a combination of four, four kind of traits, four, four, uh, uh, four focuses. Usually there'll be a, a focus on vision, uh, a secondly, a focus on relationships, uh, thirdly, a focus on ministries, and then fourthly, a focus on structure. And you can basically, in every life cycle, there's a, a you know, some are more emphasized than others, and, uh, and, it's, and it's relevant for us today in that as, a, as we consider what, what causes a church to get to that peak and then start its decline? What causes a church to start declining? And when we consider these combination of four traits, and so you kind of just look at these uh, church growth stats and things like that, usually uh, it is, begins when a church loses its focus on the first trait, that is vision. It loses its sense of vision. It, it loses its, its idea, its concept of why it exists, or where it's going. Uh, what is its, uh, its, its purpose, its mission, its, its vision for uh, what it wants to do. Uh, and it is almost consistently uh, in all these uh, church growth kind of books and websites said that a church begins to die when it loses sight of its vision. It will, even when it does lo- lose, start losing sight of its vision, it will still look like a healthy church on the outside. Uh, there will be many relationships There'll be many ministries, and there'll be a lot of structure. And that, that looks good in any organization. It looks great. 
but without vision, without a sense of where it's going, remembering what is its big picture, the church at that point loses its, its reason, its motivation for why it does what it does. And this is a principle that we see is reflective of life. In a, a verse that's familiar to many of you, perhaps, Proverbs 29, 18, uh, there the Solomon writes, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy or blessed is he who keeps the law. Where there is no vision in this verse, it reminds us that vision is a, is a phrase, is a term that means uh, not just uh, a, someone's idea, someone's own imagination, but it refers to prophetic vision. It really refers to, in other words, God's revelation to man. When people do not have God's word, they are unrestrained. They are basically let loose. They basically become undisciplined in what they're doing. And they will eventually just do whatever that seems right in their own eyes. And that's sometimes good, but most often it's not. And when people, though, have a clear vision, when they understand their vision, when they understand the revelation from God, and they understand what God God wills for them and God's plan for them, they are blessed or happy if they keep those laws. They keep God's revelation. And so this morning, as we have over the last decade or so, we begin with a reminder for our church of our vision our mission, and our values of Essa Bible. We desire to proclaim what is not just my vision or the elder's vision, but we want to proclaim what is God's vision. What is God's revelation? What is God's plan for his church, for his people, for you and me? And this, of course, I hope, is though it is fundamental, it is fundamental, um, it should not be new to you if you have been in this church for the last five to ten years, but it is still essential. It helps those of us who have been around a while to remember what, what undergirds what we're doing here at SF Bible. Why do we do what we do? Vision is what drives those relationships that we seek to have. Vision is what drives the various ministries that we plan and, and, and faithfully serve in each week. And the vision from God is what drives eventually the building up those necessary essential structures that prop up and, and manage and organize the relationships and the ministries of this church. Of course, for those of you who are newer to Essa Bible, I'm glad you're here too, because I hope that this series that we're going to begin today will help you consider Joining us in our mission for the Lord. This year I'm entitling our Mission Vision Value series, God's Great Plan. God's Great Plan. What is God's great plan for his church? What is his vision? What is his revelation for his church? And I pray that it will set before us God's vision for us in 2023 so that we may continue to grow and thrive as the church of Christ here in San Francisco. Today, we are going to begin with the most important thing, and we'll be reminded of God's great commandment for us all. And this is is the, the most important commandment for all of us as Christians, as well as as church. As we look at Mark chapter 12, we're going to look at this morning, we're going to find that Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem during his last week. It's the Passion Week, we call it. 
And in that final week, Jesus was beginning to face increasing opposition from the religious leaders. In fact, the religious leaders sent a series of, of, uh, of groups that would come and, and question him and attack him and try to find some area of his, in, in his answer where they could discredit him before the people. He's attacked by both sides of the religious spectrum, from the Sadducees on one side to the Pharisees on the other. He skillfully answers a, a delegation of the Sanhedrin in, in the end of chapter 11. In chapter 12, uh, 13 to 17, Jesus answers the delegation of the Pharisees and the Herodians. And immediately after that, in chapter 12, verse 18 to 27, Jesus answered a delegation of Sadducees. And each time that Jesus answers these religious leaders, he answers them with authority. He's, his authority is challenged, but Jesus answers with authority from God's word. He teaches us no another. He teaches clearly from God's truth, with God's truths. And in our passage today, Jesus is challenged once again, this time by a scribe. And as we study this exchange between the scribe and Jesus, we learn what is really what is the, the main point of all of God's revelation to mankind. Last week I talked about what is the, I kind of mentioned, what is the main central person of this book, and that is Jesus Christ. But having a telling us about what, who Jesus Christ is, this main central character and person, what is the main point of knowing this character? And it's summarized by today's greatest commandment, the great commandment, and that is a response of God's people to love him, to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. As we look today at this uh, exchange between Jesus and the scribe, we see four parts of this exchange, this conversation that they have that calls, that calls God's people, that calls you and me, above all else in this life, to love God, to love God. And we're going to see that closely associated with that is to love our neighbor as ourself. So all that we do, all that we think, all that we speak in the context of our lives as Christians, as well as in the context of life as a church, is to be an outflow of our love for God. And that's first. That's foremost. That's the great commandment. That is, this is God's plan for us. So let's take a look then at this conversation that they have. The first part of this discussion and the conversation is, first of all, begins with the scribe's challenge of Jesus in verse 28. We read in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, we read this. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing. He was arguing with the, the Sadducees. And recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? What commandment is the foremost of all? Now the scribes here, that is being described here is one of the experts of the Old Testament law. They were also called uh, sometimes lawyers. Uh, they were just like our lawyers are experts in the law. So these scribes were experts in their law, in the Mosaic law. In Matthew's account, uh, there's a, Matthew gives a parallel account of this. We also learn that this man was actually sent by the Pharisees. He was sent by the Pharisees to test Jesus. He too was not. He's not asking this as a sincere uh, seeker. He's sent by as a as a delegation from the Pharisees to put Jesus to the test to seek to capture him in something in something that he might say. Mark tells us that this man had heard the discussion between Jesus and the Sadducees, and as an expert in law, he recognized that Jesus had given an exceptional answer to their question. He answered it skillfully, for he had answered the Sadducees. And you know, the Sadducees, they, they only believed that the, that the 
Only the Pent- in the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of Moses, were inspired. They didn't believe in the rest. And so Jesus, in his skillfulness, when he answers the question, he uses only the Pentateuch. He quotes from the book of Moses and answers them so that they are, uh, they are uh, refuted by him. It was obvious that Jesus knew the law well, and since he knew the law so well, the scribe decided to challenge Jesus with a question that, <clears throat> excuse me, regarding all of the law, a question that was uh, popular among the, to debate among religious scholars. It was uh, just basically a much a debated, much questioned, and of question that they all had, the religious leaders had, and there had been no consensus about this question. It was sort of uh, uh, just one of those, uh, uh, you know, uh, unanswered questions at this time. And the question simply: which question, What what commandment is the foremost of all? Of all the commandments that exist in the Bible and the law, which commandment is is first of all? which is most important of all, is really the connotation. The rabbis, of course, had uh, made sure that they knew the laws because God had gave them law. We read out of Deuteronomy 6 very clearly that God told them, I'm going to give you all these laws, I'm going to give you these statutes, I'm going to give you these commandments, and you need to keep them if you want to live long in the land, if you want to experience blessing in the land. You're to keep them, you're to teach them, and you're to do them out of love, love for me. Now, Rabbis, therefore, had made sure they knew what the laws were. There were 613 laws to three, in the, in the, just in the first five books of Moses alone. Of those, 365 were negative commands. 248 were positive commands. And it was natural with so many commandments, they began to start prioritizing the commandments. So even uh, <clears throat> kind of figuring out which one's more important than the others. Eventually, people began seeking one commandment, uh, the one commandment that was most important of all that would, in a sense, summarize all the other commandments. 20 years earlier, there's a story that's told of a a rabbi, Hillel, when challenged by a Gentile to, quote, teach me the whole Torah while I'm standing on one leg, answered, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole Torah. That's the law. The rest is commentary. Not a bad answer. One rabbi quoted uh, Proverbs 3, 6, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Another quoted Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous shall live by faith. Not bad. Those are, those are good verses, good, great truths. And so there was much debate among scholars in that day about which of these were the most important commandment of all. And so the scribe tests Jesus knowing that whatever answer he gives, there's going to be somebody who disagrees with him. And so, perhaps hoping to discredit him. How would Jesus answer this question? What commandment is foremost of all? Now, before we look to the answer, uh, Jesus' answer, I want to make clear that although they sought to identify the most important commandment, it did not mean for them that the others were, were to be neglected. In fact, the Pharisees created a whole set of extra rules, right, to avoid violating any of God's ritual laws. All of God's commandments were binding upon the Israelites. For in thinking of the greatest commandment, sometimes some will mistakenly conclude that if you just keep the greatest commandment, you can basically neglect all the others, that you can ignore them. For instance, as long as they love God or as long as they believe in Jesus or as long as they they acknowledge God, then they can forsake church or they can divorce their spouse or they can profane God's names or they can speak lies or they can indulge in any other sins that exist in our world. But of course that would be contrary because all of God's laws 
are fine. All of God's commandments are for his people to be obeyed. That is his standard. Therefore, you are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. But our concern here, in the, in, as having said that, is what is the overarching commandment? What is the, the greatest, the most important? Not to the neglect of the others, but what is the one that it overarches all? What is the chief command of God? Now let's look then to Jesus' answer of this great question. What is the form, commandment? Which commandment is foremost of all? Jesus gives an answer in verses 29 through 31. Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus, Jesus quotes here directly from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 to 5. When he quoted this, every Jewish person around would have known this verse immediately, for this is known as the Shema. It is a prayer it's a, that, that they would pray, we would repeat uh, twice a day in the morning and the evening. Uh, every faithful, devout Jew would memorize this and be able to repeat it. The word Shema, of course, refers to the first word in the Hebrew text. That means that is the command to hear. And the first part of the Shema forms the basis then for the commandment which follows. Each Israelite in this great Shema was reminded of two things about the Lord God when repeating the Shema. First of all, they were reminded that the Lord is our God. That the, the God, the, the God who, <coughs> who not only created the universe, but who made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, basically had made a covenant with the people of Israel. Therefore, he is their God by covenant, by a, oath, by a, a, pro, a promise signed by blood. He made a promise to be their God, and he would always be their God. In doing so, the God of love made a commitment to love them. And so when they repeat, the Lord is our God, they're, they're remembering all of God's faithful love in choosing them as the object of his love. To always love them, always seek their good. Even when they sin, even when they rebel, he would pursue and seek after them. The Lord is our God. That's where Graham Meyer begins. Even as we think about our response of love, it begins, we must remember that the God is our God. He too has made a covenant with us, a new covenant signed with the blood, not of animals, but the blood of his son. A blood covenant that is made so that all through faith in Jesus Christ might belong to him, might be adopted as his children. He's our God. Second, Israel was minded that the Lord is one in this great Shema. He is the, basically that he's the only one true and living God. In a world where many say that there are multiple gods, there are many gods, uh, and they're all based, maybe the different gods out there are just the same, just different names for the, this one God. The, great, the Shema reminds Israel that the Lord, the God of the Bible, is the only one and true and living God. All other gods are false gods. And then, so not only is there one God, but this one God is their God. And so because of this, they were then commanded to respond. And the Shema calls them to respond. First of all, number one is to love the Lord your God. They were commanded to love the Lord your God with all their heart, all their mind, all their soul, all their strength. 
with all their being is another way of putting it. The love God is basically to uh, this word it comes from the Greek verb ag- agapeo, agapao. And it refers to this unconditional commitment. Uh, unconditional commitment that one makes to sacrifice and serve for the good of the other, for the better of the other. Now, therefore, this love that we are called to do, we are to have this kind of love for God. What does this kind of love look like? When God has given us an example in his word, this, this love is described in 1 John 4.10. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our our sins. We just celebrated Christmas, so this is not far from our minds. We know how God showed his love. God showed his love by sending his one and only son, not just to be born, not just take on humanity and flesh, but then to be nailed to a cross and killed. Not for his sins, but for the sins of sinners. God's loved the world that he sent his son to be a sacrifice for our good that we might be better. And since God loves us so, the response ought to be then, according to the scriptures, is to love him in return. The love of God is to be a love that is, comes from our whole being. The, the phrase is the heart, the soul, the mind, and the strength. Describe this very... In a sense, they really are synonyms often, but they're really, in, in, in listing them all together, is a way of communicating that it's, it's the totality of our being. It's all the different way, parts of our life. Every way that we are, the, every aspect of our life, we are to love God in, from. Loving God is basically a, a devotion towards Him, an affection towards Him uh, that manifests in a commitment to seek God's good. And God is perfect. He doesn't need anything, but God's good is when he's glorified. And so in other words, we simply say we seek God's glory. We seek his glory. That's how we seek his good. You know you love God when you want to glorify him, when you want to see him magnified, when you want to see him glorified, when you want to see him praised, when you want to see other people come and love him too. When you want to see others worship his, na- his son, these are ways, this is a, a reflection of a love for God. Now we could just stop right here with this commandment, the command to love God with all our being. And we just meditate personally on how we each, each of us are loving God with our lives. But Jesus doesn't stop there in his answer. He's answered very clearly that the chief commandment of all is to love God, but he makes his, this command, this, this greatest command, immediately just so practical for his listeners. Although the scribe had only asked for the most important commandment, Jesus goes beyond it and gives him the second most important commandment as well, in verse 31. And the second commandment he tells him is to, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This uh, second commandment is a quote from Leviticus 19.18. The command is to love is the same as in the first commandment. But in this case, the object has changed. The greatest commandment is to love as, and having the object of our love, God himself. But the second greatest commandment is to love as well. But now it's to love our neighbor. The object has changed from God to our neighbor, to men and women created in the image of God. Men and women who designed and made to reflect God's character. 
We're to love our neighbors. And there was debate about who was our neighbor. Maybe our neighbors is just the people right next, immediately next to us, maybe the people that we are in our family. But Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 expands the definition of a neighbor to anyone who comes along our path. The phrase at the end to, that is modifies you shall love your neighbor, that phrase as yourself, is not the third commandment. And some people mistakenly say, you want to make sure that you also have to, you need to love yourself. That's not the command here at all, but it really implies that it assumes what naturally takes place in every human's life, that we love ourselves. Now, I know there are some people who really hate themselves and say, oh, I hate myself, and really down on ourselves because we fail, and I'm such a sinner, etc., things like that. But this is talking not about that, but it's talking about how each of us naturally look out for our best interests. When you woke up this morning, or you probably, well, hopefully you have. If you haven't, you're going to do it soon. Is that you ate something. Why do you eat something? Because you love yourself. You want to be healthy. You want to have strength. And so you eat. You, hopefully you showered or you kind of took care of yourself. You combed your hair. Well, most of you did. And that's great. And you, you just get, you put on some nice, decent clothes. Because you care about how you look. We care about ourselves. We love ourselves naturally. There's a natural love for ourselves. We look out for ourselves, for our well-being. And so the second greatest commandment is to cause us to love our neighbors, love our fellow neighbors, whoever they may be, whoever's in our path, whoever's in our life, as we, and take care of them as we would take care of ourselves. That's what this loving our neighbor is ourselves is emphasizing. So after giving then and these two greatest commandments, Jesus completes, kind of completes his statement with this phrase at the end, there is no other commandment greater than these. That's, this is Jesus' answer. You ask for the foremost commandment of all, the greatest commandment of all, the most important commandment of all, and he gives them two. Because they're co- connected, they're interrelated. It's to love God, and it's to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus knows, of course, that there are other commandments to be obeyed, but none compared to these two in importance. In fact, in Matthew's parallel account of this, in Matthew 22, verse 40, he says that on these two commandments, Jesus says on these two commandments, depend the whole law and the prophets. That is, the rest of scriptures, all of the scriptures, basically fall under these two commands. They may be asking us to do different things, asking Israel to do different things, but essentially they fall under either a love for God, a love for a neighbor, and maybe perhaps both. And so, having given us this great command, we were reminded then that this is the great command. If we think about all that the scriptures teach us, it is a, teaches us to respond with love for God with all our lives with all our being, and to basically put him first in our life, to worship him first, foremost, above all, to seek his glory above all with our lives. And then secondly, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to seek their good. As a church of Jesus Christ that seeks to do his will, we study God's word. And of all that we learn in this book about what we are to do, what we are to be, as Christians, as well as a, ch- as a church, we remember that this book, all of it, everything that we learn is a call for you and me to love God with all our being. And it's a call to love our neighbor as ourselves. Of course, at the beginning of a year, it's fitting that we reflect then on this great commandment. How are we 
doing in loving God with all our being. We can ask ourselves practically, how does the love of God manifest in our lives? Jesus, by quoting the second commandment, even implies that, there, there's a, the, that <coughs> loving our neighbor is one of those ways in which we reflect our love for God. But the first John fact three gives us a, a further elaboration on what it looks to love, love God. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. One of the ways that we show God's love is that we keep his commandments. We do it out of a love for him. Not because we're trying to earn our salvation, but we love God. We want to, we want to seek him glorified, right? We want to see that we want to express to him our affections towards him. How do you express your affection towards him? Well, is you want to do what they ask of you, what God asks of you. And so we, we want to obey his commands. Joyful, willing obedience to the commands of God is how you and I can demonstrate our love for him. And conversely, if you are not obeying his commands, then you really cannot say that you are loving God. Because there's an area of your life, you're disobeying God's commands. You're not, you're not considering him first. Of course, the most visible of these commands then is the second commandment, to love your neighbors yourself. And we're still in first, still another verse in First John reads this. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. In question, this verse reminds us that our lives ought to reflect a love for, for others, not just a love for our neighbor, but here particularly a love even for our brothers and sisters in Christ, our fellow, peop- uh, fellow worshipers here at Essa Bible. And, that, and this verse reminds us that if you're not loving your brothers and sisters here in the body of Christ, if you hold a grudge to someone or you're bitter towards someone, you're angry towards them, you, you seek their, you're seeking their harm rather than their good, you cannot say that you are loving God because if you love God, you will love your fellow brothers and sisters who are fellow children of God. They belong to God. Not only made in the image of God as all, everybody else in the world, but they particularly are adopted children of God just like you and me. So Jesus calls us to love God with all our being, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And this is the great commandment, to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. All the else that we do in this church, uh, if we ever feel caught up in what we're doing, we get frustrated with the the maybe some of the sometimes the relationships that we have. We get frustrated with uh, the the ministries that we have, whether they're you know accomplish what we want them to do. We get frustrated with the various structures in our church that that we need to maintain or, or we're striving to maintain. But we can always go back into this first question. What is the foremost commandment of all? What does God desire of you and me as Christians, as a church, most of all? Am I loving God? Is he the object of my affections first and foremost? Do I seek his good, his glory more than anything else? Do I want to know? Because as I, we come to know him, we respond in love of him because he's what he's done he's for us. And of course, we can only love him because we come to realize that he loved us first. But Jesus' answer resonates with the scribe 
the scribe who sought to uh, basically uh, catch him in, in a, an answer comes to recognize that Jesus, man, he gave a good answer. He's sort of uh, astounded and kind of surprised by Jesus' answer. Jesus' teaching is so authorita- authoritative and truthful that it affects this scribe in a way that, that draws him to Jesus. And that's how Jesus is. His truth draws us. We listen to our world. We don't, we're all debating about what is true. We don't know anymore. We're not sure what's truth out there. But we know what's truth because Jesus speaks it. It's found in his word. And we see that, that the scribe responds with an answer to Jesus' To Jesus in verses 32 to 33. And this is our third, uh, the third part of the, this exchange. Verse 32 to 33, we read back in Mark chapter 8, Mark 12. I'm sorry, Mark 12. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one. There is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe basically confesses that Jesus has spoken the truth. You're right. You're you're true. He responds in full agreement with Jesus. He even repeats Jesus' answer publicly. And most amazingly of all, this scribe recognizes the significance of Jesus' statement at the end of verse 31, where Jesus had said, there is no other commandment greater than these, The scribe here applies it to the various ceremonial laws reflected in this phrase, offerings and sacrifices. He says that these two commandments that Jesus gave as an answer is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. These burnt offerings were those offerings that were wholly consumed, burned up on on the altar for the Lord. Of course, the sacrifice refers to all the various animal sacrifices that would be given uh, to the Lord through, uh, through the ritual worship in the temple. But these two terms sum- summarize the whole sacrificial system, all the ceremonial, the ritual laws that God had commanded Israel in the Mosaic law. But in this way, he recognized, the scribe recognized, that love for God, loving for God, is greater in importance than all these ceremonial laws that, by the way, at this time, it was the, the preparation for the Passover. That's what everybody was caught up doing. They were caught up, make sure, I got to make sure I, I get the right animal. I got to make sure, I, and they had all this, they had the whole system in place. I got to make sure I offer the right animal, the right, the right sacrifices. I, I'm, I'm here. I got to make sure I go through the, the appropriate cleansing. I got to make sure that I eat the appropriate meals that need to be prepared. And this scribe recognizes that what Jesus said is right. But before I focus on all those things, they, they are important, they're part of God's law, is I cannot do these things apart from a love for God. For love for God and love for our neighbor is much more than all these sacrifices, than all these offerings that we're making. In Hosea 6, chapter chapter 6, verse 6, we see a very similar point made by the prophet. There God says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The scribe had begun to recognize the true relationship between all those ceremonial laws, all these other Mosaic laws, and the relationship between the great commandment to love God. 
ceremonial laws, sacrifices, offerings, in, in comparison to the love of God, they are, they are useless apart from a love for God. It's like when 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 4 tells us that it's what uses to do all these things for God if you don't have love. You're just you're noisy gong and, and clanging cymbals. And for us t- today, the principle that the scribe began to recognize that Jesus had taught remains just as true for you and me. Yes, we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore, but we do offer our sacrifices, our sacrifices of offering. We just gave earlier today, sacrifices of praise in our singing and our worship and song, the sacrifice of good deeds when we, we strive to do good towards one another. We give of our service, our possessions, our time. All these things are considered, it can be considered sacrifices. But the danger is for all of us today, still just as it was back then, is that we can go through the motions and do all these religious activities, sacrifices, and give these things apart from a love for God. That he's not the object of our affection as we do these things. Sometimes we, in our Christian life, we can fall into a rut where we're just going through the motions, right, of, of church, of the Christian life. And yet our heart is far away from God. He's not our first love, as Jesus rebuked the church in Ephesus. We go through the, do the things we do. We, we have relationships. We, we do ministries. We organize structure in a church. All important. Needs to be done. But we do them without a love for God, without an affection for God, without a desire to seek His glory. We're just doing it because that's what we do. And that is a death a death warning for all of us if when we are when we do that when we do that in our lives we ought to do all that we do in the church of Jesus Christ from a love for God out of a love for God so upon hearing the answer of the scribe Jesus then responds with his last answer and as is his own challenge a challenge that he poses really to the scribe. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. And after that, uh, Jesus does such an excellent job and no one else answers, asks him a question. And he then starts, continues, goes on the offensive even. But in any case, Jesus observes here regarding the scribe's answer that it was an intelligent answer. It was a, he had thought through and figured out, uh, at least intelligently in his mind, what the truth was. That to love God, to love our neighbor as ourself is more important than all the other commandments put together. For they summarize all those commandments. He understood the significance of Jesus' answer. So Jesus, in a sense, gives him a word of commendation. He tells him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, for any, you know, I don't know what you think about when you hear that phrase, but that's a, that would have been a great encouragement to any Israelite in their days. For what they sought most of all was the kingdom of God. Everybody was seeking the kingdom of God. It was promised to them, in, uh, from, from, uh, especially from David's time, that there would be a kingdom 
of David, where God's, David's son would sit on that kingdom forever, and it would be a kingdom of peace, it would be a kingdom of righteousness, etc. And all the Old Testament prophecies variously spoke of this kingdom. So to be part of this kingdom, to be included in this kingdom, would, was the, the hope of every Israelite. And here Jesus, this rabbi, is telling the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He had gone farther than any of his fellow Pharisees. His understanding of the supremacy of the love for God had brought him close near to the kingdom of God. And that's good. But yet, coming near to the kingdom of God is not far enough. Same time, this commendation was a challenge. A challenge for the Jesus, knowing this scribe's heart provides for him. Though he was not far from the kingdom of God, Jesus is very careful to not say that he was yet in the kingdom of God. How does one get from being near to the kingdom of God into the kingdom of God? All the scribe had to do was just look right before him. And the answer was standing right there. That's through Jesus, the king who would rule over this kingdom. You know the king, and he knows you. You can be part of his kingdom. The response of faith and love and worship of this king, submission to this king, was what was needed to repent of sin and believe in Jesus Christ, the king, was what this scribe needed to enter the kingdom of God. For us who regularly attend a Bible teaching church such as this one, we must be, and I must be, constantly aware, beware that it is neither our orthodoxy, that is our right doctrine, nor our orthopraxy, our right conduct to be in the church that makes us Christians. You can have right doctrine, you can have the right conduct, behaviors, and not be in the kingdom of God. This scholar answered intelligently, you might have the right head knowledge. You might know that, yes, I know that to believe in Jesus Christ is what you need to do to enter into kingdom heaven. But that doesn't, it's not the same thing as actually believing in the king who, whose death and resurrection enables you to enter the kingdom. What makes a Chris, us Christians, of course, a remind, reminder again, is through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, Right? It's faith in him, trusting in him. It's a faith that begins with that very moment of salvation, but it's a faith that continually believes throughout the rest of our days, through the difficult times as well as through the easy times. Question for all of us to remind ourselves and ask ourselves again as we begin the New Year's, whom are we, who, in whom are we trusting for our salvation? Is it ourselves? Is it what we've done? Or is it who who we believe in, and what he's done. May we have the confidence of knowing that our faith does not rest on us coming here every Sunday does not rest upon us serving in any ministry of this church. 
It does not rest upon us saying a prayer or doing any number of Christian disciplines. But may our faith, our salvation rest solely and securely in our in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, alone. In his death, in place of us on the cross, and his resurrection that provides hope for all who believe in him. Because God so loved the world that he sent us his Son, so that you and I who repent and believe in him can not only be near to the kingdom of God, but that we might enter into the kingdom of God. Well, these, these four uh, parts of this conversation remind us of the great command to love God with all our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The year is 2023. Trivia. When did Esa Bible begin? Uh, you might ask some of the... the, uh, the the earliest of the people who came to this church, and they might give you different answers, but uh, officially we have down that Esau Bible began in 1964. 1964. Wow. That is nearly 60 years of ministry. Um, over this next year, we'll be especially beginning the 60th year of ministry of Esau Bible. And I ask myself, I'm, I always cons- and as a pastor, I know our fellow elders are probably thinking about it as well, and, and maybe you might wonder about it once in a while. Where is SF Bible in the life cycle of, this, of a church? Have we started dying and not realized it yet? Have we lost our focus on the vision which God calls us to do all that we do? May today's scripture remind us that God calls us to love him with all our being. That that would be our passion. He would be the object of our love and and devotion. And secondly, to love our neighbor as ourselves. That when we love God, it should not manifest in in a hatred toward other people in our world. It should manifest in a compassionate love for everyone. Yes, they disagree with us. Yes, they may even persecute us. But like Jesus who came and showed us the way, we are to pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, show mercy upon them. Father, give me courage to share with them the truth of the gospel that they too might experience your mercy and come to know you and your love and that they too might join us in worshiping and loving you. These two commandments are what should characterize every Christian and every church. They are, they, are, they are the basis upon, out of which we are to obey the, all the other uh, commands and, and, guides and, and uh, guidelines that God's, the Scripture gives us. As long as we obey these great commands, we will... All that we do will be an outflow then of our love for him as we strive to keep his commandments. May this prophetic vision, this revelation from God guide us for as long as he will use us here in our city of San Francisco. Well, let me uh, give, leave you with a couple questions just for your uh, maybe discussion, small group discussion this week. Questions are, number, th- one, number one, how does the love of God manifest in your life? 
Number two, how does your love for God affect your love for your neighbors? How does that how does it reflect in your love for your neighbors? And then thirdly, are you, are you going through the motions of the Christian life apart from a love for God? It's a good question to ask of ourselves. And, and two, if we find ourselves going through, find ourselves going through the motions, then we can repent right now and, and confess our sin and, and ask God to renew our first love for him. Because it's easy to just go through the motions. The church in Ephesus, the same thing. It can happen as a Bible. It's happening to some of us here. But we can repent and we can turn and we can walk rightly before him. And return to that first love, a love for God with all our being, and then a love for our neighbor as ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your truths. Thank you for reminding us of the great commandment that your will for us, your plan for our church is that we would love you, that you would be the object first and foremost of our affections, that all that your commandments, all that your statutes, all that they really teach us is really a call to, call to us, is that they call us to love you. And as your scripture reveals more of yourself to us, Lord, how can we not love you? For you have shown your mercy towards us in your son, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for again, for your son and the love that you displayed through in him, in your sacrifice for our good. And so, Lord, we can only respond with a desire to love you in return. And may we love you with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. And Lord, may you, we show our love for you through loving our neighbor as ourselves. Father, may this great commandment guide us in every endeavor that we do. Set it always before us as part of our vision of what you desire for this church. Help us to be known as a church that loves God and loves others. God, we pray this for your glory. Help us to continue to look to you and to set our eyes upon you. We pray that you be glorified in our lives and the life of this church in the year to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.